we not monster kids? Welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Are we not monster kids? My name is Derek M. Cook, your writer, host, producer of this podcast, the home of classic monsters, modern talk. Are we not mo- Okay, that's getting old. Thank you to the band, Les Panche Surfers. Their song, Mapache, is what we're using to open the show this week. This is episode 241, and we've got Michael Leggy back on the show. You might know him as the horror host, Dr. Drek. I also know him now as one of the biggest fans of the 1932 film, Island of Lost Souls. So that's the movie we're going to talk about this week on Monster Kid Radio. But there is a ton of other business to get to. For example, if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, one more Monster Kid Radio crash for the Halloween season happening Friday, October 30th, 9.15 p.m. at the Northwest Film Center in downtown Portland. They are showing the film, I Walked with a Zombie. And out of their West Indian island comes a tale of terror and voodoo, of witchcraft and zombies, and all the weird black magic that the white man seldom sees. It is a tale of brother against brother, and their love for a woman who lived with the dead. And it is also the tale of a young nurse who never believed such things could happen. to tell me that the voodoo priest could cure Mrs. Holland? Better doctors. Dambala, this woman is ill. This is the ceremony of voodoo death, a ceremony that seeks the life of the woman who lives forever, who walks with the dead. That's awesome. I cannot wait to see this film. Now, I don't know for sure, but typically the Northwest Film Center only shows 35 millimeter film so my fingers are crossed that that's what we're going to see even if it's not however to see it projected on the big screen with a group of like-minded folks this is going to be a treat i can't wait to get to this film so if you're going to be in the area i would love to meet you i'll bring my recorder with me in case anybody does show up and they want to share their thoughts about the movie or the experience or just halloween in general on the show one other piece of business to get to You might have noticed on Facebook that I've uploaded a number of promos. You might also see this in the podcast feed for Monster Kid Radio. You know, Monster Kid Radio, despite having been going since 2013, we've never had an actual promo. Well, it's time to get one. So if you are a podcaster or you have a video show or anything that you'd like to use a Monster Kid Radio promo in, feel free. Head over to monsterkidradio.net, click on the promos button, And you're going to see four promos. I'm calling it the Spook Show series because it's pretty much the same dialogue placed over some Spook Show trailer music. The cool thing is that I had four podcasters contribute their voices, one to each promo. So you've got Craig Beam, you've got Craig Psyops, you've got Sean Morrissey or Jeff Pollier to choose from. Choose them all, put them all in rotation. And big thanks, of course, to Craig, Craig, Sean, and Jeff. Now, after we talk about Island of Lost Souls with Michael, I'm going to come back with some feedback and a comment on something that was left on Facebook. And then, of course, we got a voicemail from our friend, Stephen B. Sullivan. That's going to happen after the conversation about the movie. And that's going to happen right after this. These everyday people are about to relive their dreams under hypnosis. They are not actors. Listen. All of a sudden, we walk into a room, 
I turn around, there's no doors. There's no windows, and I have to go home. As I go to kiss her, it seems as though we're surrounded by mosquitoes. Only he's not wearing any clothes. Charlie! Charlie, watch the bayonet! Watch the bayonet! What are dreams? What do they mean? When you dream, you wander into another world where everything is strange and terrifying. When you dream, you become a night walker. <laughs> and now, a warning from William Castle, producer of The Night Walker. Do you know that a dream can kill you? Gruesome thought, isn't it? <laughs> Do you hear that? It's the scream of a woman having a nightmare. I love you so much. That is the voice of a woman asleep, dreaming. Does her lover exist? Is he real or is he only a dream lover? This can happen to you, too. I know why my dreams seem real. Because when I'm awake, my life with you is like a nightmare. My lover is only a dream, but he's still more of a man than you. novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. Hi, this is Gregory William Mank, classic horror film historian, author of the newly published book, The Very Witching Time of Night, Dark Alleys of Classic Horror Cinema, and such books as Beta Lugosi and Boris Karloff, The Expanded Story of a Haunting Collaboration. And you are listening to Monster Kid Radio. I'd like to welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, Michael Leggy, a.k.a. Dr. Drek, a.k.a. one of the biggest fans of Island of Lost Souls that I know. Michael, welcome back to the show. Great to be back and talking about one of my favorite movies. Oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think it's kind of overlooked. 
I mean, I, I think it belongs in the top tier with Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman. Wow. Personally, yeah. Well, I think a, it's, it's a great movie. It's a bold claim, but I think it's good, too, so I kind of agree. So <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't question that. I can't argue with you there. It is fantastic. Before we started recording, though, you mentioned something to me, and I want to say something on the air. Congratulations on launching the 12th season of the Dr. Drek Show. That's right. And we'll hit 13 next. Lucky number 13. Nice. Is there like an anniversary for the 13th for horror hosts? I don't, I don't know. So oh, right. I don't know. You have to give a gift or something? Now you've given me an idea. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll have somebody in a hockey mask come and kill us off for the 13th. <laughs> How's the show been going? Good. Good. I mean, we're still out there. Um, we're still all over the place. Uh, well, I told you, I think before you're in, we're in Portland, uh, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whatever the uh, public access is there, but we're still all over the place. I still get fan mail from different parts of the country, which I still think is weird, but I welcome it because <laughs> it's, it's been just uh, so long that, uh, I've been doing it that after a while, I wonder if anybody's watching it. And then all of a sudden I'll get a fan mail. So, oh, there's somebody that's watching it. Well, you do good work, sir. So congratulations on hitting uh, the 12th season and many, many more, as many as you want to do, and then some. Yeah, yeah. I'll, maybe I'll be like Karloff and want to die in harness. <laughs> Has a horror host ever passed away on screen before hosting a movie? Jeez, I hope not. <laughs> the other question is, would we know the difference? Oh, that's true. See, everybody's so made up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think... Um, Boy, Zachary just hit his, what, 99th birthday or 98 or something like that. Yeah, he's still kicking. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Really amazing. Well, again, congratulations on all your success. So, Well done. And thank you for taking some time to appear on Monster Kid Radio to talk about this film, Island of Lost Souls from 1932. convinced that the thing on this table isn't human. Its cries are human. Do you know what it is, what I began with? No. An animal? Well, we may as well discuss this frankly, now that you know the facts. I wanted to prove how completely she was a woman. Get everything ready. For what? This time I'll burn out all the animal in her. I'll make her completely human. No, no. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real wow. Um, Oh, yeah. Uh, I have a kind of an, an odd personal history with the uh, movie. Well, as I've said before, I'm kind of old, so I grew up in the 50s and 60s. And I read um, all the H.G. Wells novels, the the main ones anyway, when I was a teenager. Oh, okay. And uh, Island of Dr. Moreau, i got to get the name of the novel right, is my favorite H.G. Wells novel. Oh, okay. It was then, and it still is. I've read it multiple times. I just love it. I know that um, Wells supposedly had said that it was a satire, which is, if you look real hard, I suppose it's a satire, but it's not like you sit there laughing through the whole thing or anything. 
I think he was satirizing Darwinism and uh, society in general in the way that we organize ourselves. And uh, nobody's ever really done like an absolute version of the novel, which would be kind of hard to do, really, because it wouldn't lend itself cinematically to, to being shot by the book. But the uh, thing about the uh, movie is, and I don't know if anybody else has had a similar experience, tantalized for years seeing photos from it, famous monsters, all these great photos of the beast people and of Watton, of course, and it was never on TV. This is, you know, back in the days if we only had three or four channels. I was always looking for it, and it never would come up. And I didn't actually see this movie until I somewhere in the 1990s, when I think it was on Turner Classic Movies. And uh, I think shortly after that, it came out on VHS, and I grabbed that copy. So it took me that long to actually see the movie itself. And I understand the original negative is lost, which is really a shame. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, because the uh, Criterion copy, which I have now, um, they were saying how it was pieced together from different prints, even a 16-millimeter print. My God. If you watch real carefully, you can kind of see that. That's the version I have as well. And you can kind of see in a couple of scenes where there might have been a changeover. But yeah, unfortunately, I wish there was a, a print of this somewhere out there. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, yeah, I see the, the grain in some scenes mm. will be more than others. And the sound is decent, which is good. But I, considering everything, I suppose we should be happy it exists at all. I kind of wondered, because it was pre-code, if it was getting buried like Freaks was, you know, that they just hid it away and didn't want to show it anymore. Because I know there was an uproar about it when it came out, especially in Great Britain and things like that. But uh, when was the first time you ever saw it? I saw it back when I picked it up on VHS. It was part of the uh, the Universal Classics Monster Collection. Yeah, that's the one that I had bought. Yeah, Th that's how I first saw it on VHS, and I was a little surprised because for the longest time I thought it was a Universal film. Yeah, it's Paramount. Yeah, yeah, it's not. I mean, Universal owns it now, but it's not. And boy, it doesn't play like a Universal film at all. <laughs> no, no, it's it seems to live in its own little world, which is what I love about it. Um, yeah. I mean, if you didn't know what studio actually made it, you wouldn't be able to guess either. No, not at all. It doesn't have the, the same kind of flair that the Universal films have, but it doesn't... I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There is this otherworldly kind of blanketing of just mood and, and darkness over this whole thing. Right, and uh, since it's, well, 1932, it mm -hmm. ha doesn't have a soundtrack, I mean a background score. There's no music in it. You know, I didn't even notice that this time when I was watching it. And I'm a big film score guy, so yeah. I'm really key into that stuff. But you're right. There was no music in that. I, I think that actually made it scarier. Yeah. Because it's not, you know, signaling that something's going to happen. You know, it just happens. Huh. Yeah, clearly, I didn't need one. I mean, if, if you don't even notice, there's not a film score when it's playing. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, rumors in the past about people supposedly that are in it, either on the crew or one of the mammals. I've heard Buster Crab. I've heard Alan uh, Ladd. I've heard Randolph Scott. But, I mean, it's impossible to spot them, even if they were there. But I don't know if that's just an apocryphal story or not. But it would be, be interesting if they really were in there somewhere. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, and I can just imagine them just getting lost in the shot because there are so many of them in some shots. Yes. So many of these beast people, they hired so many extras and put them in such makeup. It's just a sea of them. It's just a screen right. full of these things, especially towards the end of the film. Yeah, yeah, when you have the uprising um, and all that. is That still, 
has a jolt. There's something about, um, even though you don't see anything, what sells that scene is Charles Lawton is screaming at the end. Oh, man. That just sends a chill up and down your spine because it really sounds like they're butchering him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I can see why that scene, or at least the sound from that scene, might have been cut in some areas. This film got butchered around the world. They cut so much out of it here and there. Yeah. I can see why. It's subversive. It is. Well, it's pre-code. Uh-huh. So, I mean, there's the bestiality aspect to it. I mean, Lawton is a pervert, <laughs> basically. I mean, he's a mad scientist, but he's much different from um, the other versions of it. He's no Colin Clive. Colin Clive I could sit and have a drink with, I feel like, you know, from Frankenstein. I don't want anything to do with Charles Lawton in this film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he has... Um, I was thinking of it when I was watching, and I said, if it wasn't Lawton, who would be the closest thing? And all I could think of was Lionel Atwell. He had that perverse side to him that could, yeah. could pull it off. Yeah, you could see that. Have you seen all the various versions of Island of Dr. Moreau? I have not. I was going to ask you the same thing. I saw the one from the 90s with Brando and all them. <sighs> I've seen them all, and okay. I've also seen the two offshoots. Actually, it's ironic because the first Island of Dr. Moreau I saw was the 70s version that had Burt Lancaster in it. How is that? Is it something I should track down and watch? It's worth watching. Uh, it's one of those movies where if you haven't seen The Island of Lost Souls, you, you might like a lot better. But having seen Island of Lost Souls, you'll see the shortcomings of it. I mean, Burt Lancaster is like a single-minded scientist who's kind of interested in pure science rather than applied science. He's not a pervert like, <laughs> like Lawton is. You know, he's not quite as despicable. And, of course, the, God, my God, the Brando one. I mean, let's face it. I mean, <laughs> sometime, I don't know, maybe during the 70s or 80s, Marlon Brando bought a ticket on the fruitcake train. And there's, there's just something really wrong with that man. <laughs> Having watched the documentary, I don't know if you saw the documentary um, about the third the third one. Uh, the Richard Stanley yeah. documentary? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems like... Brando just had such a contempt for his own profession that he would jerk the directors around and just come up with all this crazy stuff just to fool around. Like he didn't, didn't care basically. And it, I, it just kind of shows that he just is, doesn't care. He's just, uh, you know, doing whatever wacky thing comes to his mind. Yeah. And, um, out of the three, I mean, that would be number three in terms of quality. <laughs> I mean, the 70s yeah. version is better. Actually, I actually think Terra is a Man is better than The Island of Dr. Moreau from the 90s. Uh, wow, okay. Francis Lederer. Because, you know, it's an offshoot of it, but it has only one beast man in it, but it's, I thought, very effective. And, of course, Francis Lederer is, is, is excellent, uh, as, as he usually is. And I also saw um, The Twilight People. I don't know if you've heard of that one. I, I know what it is. I don't know if it's one that I've seen. Yeah, that was in the 70s, I believe. It's uh, one of the Philippines movies that was you know, made in the Philippines. Oh, okay. Eddie Romero, right? It was the director yeah, of that? Yeah, okay. it's a variation of, of it. It's, it's not bad. It's, it's, um, you know, it's not like it's trying to do The Island of Dr. Moreau, but it's basing it on The Island of Dr. Moreau with the Beast People and, and all that. That was uh, actually that was probably better than <laughs> the Franco one too. Um, so I, I think that's all the the variations that I've ever heard of is is those five. 
I think I need to see the Twilight people. I'm reviewing the credit list right now, and Pam Greer is a Panther Woman. I'm, I'm yeah. on. I'm in. Screaming demons screeching through the skies. Half man, half beast, all monster. The Twilight People. From the fortress of fear they fled. A herd of howling horrors thundering through the jungle. The Twilight People. From the cave of cruelty they came. Test tube terrors evolved from evil. Weird, winged wonder, hideous, horned horror, fiendish, fanged phenomenon, a savage stampede, hell-bent on blood, out of the shadows, onto your throat, Twilight People, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. When I was watching it again the other night, The Island of Lost Souls, I was figuring, okay, why is this the best one? And it, it came to me kind of simply, really, but in a in a... I made a little list here. Let's see if you agree with me. Okay, okay. <laughs> First of all, it's in black and white, period. <laughs> <laughs> I think you and I both have an affinity for the black and white film. Well, I think most listeners yeah. of the show probably enjoy black and white film. Black and white is just very suitable to a horror film. Agreed. I think what it is is black and white removes you one layer from reality. So you're more accepting of what you see in black and white as opposed to color because color is so realistic. That's a really good way to put it. Plus, you get the opportunity to play with so much shadow. Yeah, you never can get the, the kind of shadow play that you can get uh, in black and white as you do with color. You know, and this film's got a lot of great shadow work. And the, the second thing is Charles Lawton. He is fabulous. He is despicable. He's disgusting. <laughs> he's, he's just so weird and out of it that... Uh, you're fascinated whenever he's on there because you wonder, you can see his little mind working in all these devious ways. I think one of the most effective shots of him is when he's, uh, I think the first time he's talking to the beast people, what is the law? And he has his whip and Lugosi, who tends to get overlooked too because he's got such a small part, but Lugosi is, you know, uh, reciting the law and Lawton is standing there feeling like God. You can see it in his face and it's just chilling. He, he believes it. Well, oh, he yeah. is in a way. He is in a way. He's a god of his little island there. But I said earlier that I wouldn't want anything to do with him, but I, I would right. I would love to watch him just because yeah. he's he's so watchable and he's terrible. He's a terrible person and he's creepy and he's evil and he's slimy, but I can't help but watch him. Yeah. And, and Lawton is responsible for that, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, Burt Lancaster is a fine actor and Marlon Brando used to be, but they can't touch his performance at all as far as i'm concerned another thing that strikes me is considering like in the 70s and the 90s all the advances that we've had with makeup and prosthetics why do the beast people of the original look better and what i finally figured out which is probably maybe elementary to some people but it took me a little while to figure this out i think it's because in the island of lost souls with the with the makeup, they're still seventy five percent human and then like twenty five percent animal. But in the later versions, they're like ninety percent animal and ten percent human. In other words, they're buried so much in their makeup that you don't see the human being underneath. And I think that's what takes it away from the later versions, because somebody with a touch of an animal in them to me is scarier than somebody that's pretty much a full fledged animal with a touch of human in them. Yeah, I agree. 
I agree. You see the the more animalistic, you immediately identify it as an other. Yeah. There's something a little bit more, I think I'm going to use the word subversive again. Yes. Mm-hmm. And especially when it, in the case of Kathleen Burke, who's mm-hmm. really wonderful as Loda. And she is so, you feel so bad for her. So she's so pathetic. And when he, uh, when Lawton is grabbing her by the hands and he sees the claws and saying he's going to burn it out of her and uh, she's so terrified. It's just heartrending because her makeup is like just on the borderline of being a little bit too weird because she's got the cat face going and she has wonderful movements when she's walking and uh, cuddling up to Richard Arland. It reminds me of a cat. So she's really, really excellent. Oh, yeah. The other thing that occurred to me is why the makeup is, is much more effective is because in the later versions, they're showing, well, here's the makeup, folks. Take a good look at it. And in the first one, it's very furtive. They don't dwell on close-ups of them. If they do, it's brief. They're more shadowed. It's, it seems like all the island scenes are at night from my memory, except for uh, maybe an initial one where it's very misty looking. And having them in the dark and not being able to see them clearly all the time is very effective. Because then you imagine more of what you're seeing than what you're actually seeing. And I think that's what uh, why the makeup is better in those instances, because you don't get a really great look at it, except on some isolated occasions, like we'll go see at the end coming up to the camera, and when they're all advancing, coming at the camera. Uh, but even then, most of it's kind of fleeting. I agree with you. The makeup, when you do see it full on, it looks great. Yeah. I mean, it's very well done. It's not like they were trying to hide some shoddy work. The work is amazing. Yeah. But by burying it in the shadow and, and cloaking it with this mystery, you can't help but make it worse and in, in your own brain while you're watching it and considering what these things are. And this is what you can just barely see. Can you imagine the rest of their body? I mean, there's yeah. so much going on here with so little being seen. Yeah. Uh, the makeup was by Wally Westmore, mm-hmm. who is part of the Westmore dynasty. Uh, of makeup artists and, and such. Uh, I mean, I think Westmore, outside of Pierce, the Westmores were pretty involved and influential when it comes to what we know as special effects makeup. I think it was his brother, Percy, that did the uh, Lawton makeup for the Hunchback in Notre Dame. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think it was Percy that did that one because they were all over the place, the Westmores. They were. Yeah. Also, the, um, you know, a lot of the manimals or the beast people are, uh, when you look at the different shots, a lot of times they're all skulking in the background or you see them scattered around in the distance, that, which which really makes it creepy because you just don't know what they're up to. And a lot of them, uh, you know, the men are all stripped to the waist and they get the hair all over them. And that's, al- that's almost all they need in a way is to have those hairy bodies to look unreal. And they're very nightmarish, as opposed to the other ones that I've, the newer ones. That's the way that it hits me, anyway. They're much more nightmarish. I agree with you. Again, uh, I think you and I are both on the same page here. There is a nightmare quality here, and when you do start to see more of them, it's not that they lose their impact because there's more on screen. It just gets worse and worse and worse because there's so much depth and layers with the shadow and the light, and how we can't see any one of them and their full glory it's just terrifying yeah and i think um i don't know if this well this wouldn't have been intended in 1932 but what struck me is uh that first scene where um lawton is standing at the brink of where the uh, beast people are and lugosi's doing the law and they're all reciting it it's hard not to think of nazi germany 
Wow. Yeah. You know, he's commanding them and they repeat his laws and follow him blindly. It's, I mean, Hitler was around, but he wasn't in that kind of power yet. But it just kind of struck me, the Nazi aspect of it at that point. Just considering the implications of the master race and wow. Yeah. That's, um, there's another level. <laughs> you know, the thing I've always enjoyed with the novel, though, which I guess wouldn't translate very well to a movie, is the... Have you read the book? I have to admit, I have not. Okay. No, that's okay. You won't lose points. But, <laughs> Good. Because <laughs> the book, of course, uh, around in the middle, Moreau gets killed by one of his own beasts. Oh, really? Yeah. So he's gone, like, halfway through the novel. About the last third of the book... The uh, main character, who in the book is Pendrick, his name is Devin Parker, he's alone with the Beast people. And he's there and he slowly gets to watch them all revert back to animals. And it's very surrealistic. It's really eerie. It's kind of sad, too, because of, uh, you know, they, they weren't meant to be humans and they're struggling to get back to their animal origins, you know. So that by the end of the novel, when uh, Pendrick finally makes it back to London, he's walking through the streets, and he can't help but see the animal and people as they walk by him. So it's it's quite eerie. Huh. It's very moody and kind of, you know, like a, again, like a nightmare or a dream. I'm trying to imagine how they'd pull that off on screen, and I don't, I don't see that working. Yeah, it's something that I think can only exist in the book. Yeah. But that was always one of my favorite sections, where... Uh, they slowly revert back. If you can't beat nature, it's going to do what it wants. The creeping beast flesh. <laughs> yes, yes. In the movies, too, the character of Montgomery is very different in each one of them. In this one, Montgomery's the hero, basically. He's one of the heroes because he gets them off the island. Right. At the end in the book. He has that, he has that turn. Yeah. Yeah. And in the book, Montgomery gets killed by the beast people because he's a drunk and he gets them drunk with him and they kill him. <laughs> Not a good move. Uh, <laughs> so he's, he's the most likable Montgomery out of the three in the, uh, the Lancaster one or Lancaster when Nigel Davenport was the, was Montgomery. He was more like the book. Okay. He, he was more like, um, a dissolute former criminal type. Uh, you didn't uh, feel much any of uh, sympathy for him. And the worst one was Val Kilmo. Kilmo oh man. The last one. He was really repulsive, and you wanted him to die like the first five minutes you saw him. So he wasn't like at all like the Montgomery in the book. So very distinct characterizations in each each one of those. Yeah, there, there's not much nice we can say about the one from '96. It's a it's a mess. And if people haven't seen that Richard Stanley documentary, do you remember the name of it? Was it Lost Souls? Or something like that. Um, wish I could remember the name of it. Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. Right. Highly recommended. Yeah, we can see what happens when a small independent guy who's used to his independence gets sucked into the Hollywood system. Just loses control of the whole thing. Turned him off from filmmaking for years. Yeah. Although there's rumors now that he's going to be doing a Lovecraft adaptation, so we'll see. Well, maybe he'll do it on his own without... <laughs> <laughs> Without any interference? Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least Brando can't ruin it now. He's dead. <laughs> well, if you watch the documentary and you read about what happened, it, Brando, Kilmer wasn't, you know, the most supportive. <laughs> no, he was a jerk, too. Feruza Balk stood by him and yeah. threatened to walk off the movie when he was thrown off the film, but her agent convinced her to stick around. It's a fascinating documentary. 
I'd probably recommend the documentary before the film. (laughs) Yeah, actually. Although seeing the documentary finally made me see the film. Oh, really? I was putting it off because I would just had heard about how awful it was. I remember reading an article about what had happened, the events that are discussed in the documentary. I read an article about it in uh, Fangoria, I think. And I had read that the director snuck back on sets and got himself in some monster makeup so he can kind of just see what's going yeah. on. And yeah. yeah, supposedly he's in some of the crowd scenes. Which is funny. <laughs> That's kind of a good payback anyway, is to sneak yeah. yourself in there out of a movie you've been kicked off of. <laughs> yeah. But no, I haven't seen the 70s one. I'm interested. I think it's on Netflix. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Yeah, it's, that one's pretty easy to find. The original, though, is the best. The original is... Hands down. To go back to your list of the reasons why they work, it works so well. You know, the black and white, the shadow work. Lawton is amazing. I would say the fog, too, at the beginning. Yep. Mm-hmm. That fog, and that was all natural. That wasn't planned. Oh, was it? Yeah. That's, well, they're watched, really out in the sea. It's not a fake. Right, yeah. They shot out on uh, Catalina, yep. which is 20, 25 miles off the coast of California, and... The fog just happened to be there, so they shot with it, and it looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, it uh, has that same misty effect that mm-hmm. uh, in the movie Vampire. Oh yeah, has that same misty look because he was he purposely shot through gauze, I believe, when he was doing that movie to make it look have that look. Mm-hmm. I just can't think of any uh, thing that really bothered me about the movie. Sometimes you see movies like you know if they only did this or if they only did that, but you know it's it's nice and tight. Yeah, it's beautifully shot. I, I, all the performances are, are wonderful. Even even at the beast people, like Uran there, that guy. I think he was German. Um, <laughs> the orangutan guy. Yeah, uh, and Maling, the uh, dog man. Oh, he's great. Yeah, I really felt for him. Yeah, yeah. I think he's in a serial, but I don't know which. Uh, the actor's <laughs> name is Tetsu Komai or something mm-hmm. like that. He was in The Night Walker, which is a William Castle film, but he, he had quite the career. Yeah. I mean, he's he's mostly probably known for, for Maling, but uh, mm-hmm. otherwise I don't know what else. <laughs> but he's he's fantastic. He really brings some sadness, I suppose. I mean, he's the dog boy, and he's, he's loyal to yeah. a fault. He's man's best friend, and his ultimate fate is just heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. He does a great take after the uh, drunken captain punches him and he revives and he shakes his head like a dog. Oh, it's great. Yeah. It's pretty yes. fantastic. Everybody everybody gave so much thought to what they were doing. It's You it's mentioned marvelous. you mentioned uh Burke, you know, the Panther Woman. Yes. Was it, this was her first film. This was the result of a, co- a nationwide contest to cast the Panther Woman for Island of Lost Souls, and she was the ultimate winner. She had no Hollywood experience getting into this, yet she acts with her entire body. She embodies what a cat person would move like. Actually, it might have helped that she uh, didn't uh-huh. have any experience. I could see that. Yeah, you know, because then you don't have any rules to follow, and you just go by instinct. Her instincts were spot on. She did a great job. She had a little bit of a career afterwards. Not... Yeah, she was in Murders in the Zoo. Mm-hmm. She gets to be dumped into a lake with crocodiles by Lana Lantwell, <laughs> which is a distinction in itself, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she made many movies. Uh, I'm not sure if she really wanted to be a star. I mean, she won the uh, contest, but might be one of those things where you do it and, okay, now I've done this, let me do something else. I haven't read this for sure, but I got the impression she was kind of pressured into it by her boyfriend. Yeah, I heard he was obnoxious on the set. Yeah, he had to be banned from the set. Yeah. 
yeah, he was very pushy. And when they eventually married, they only stuck together for about a year. Yeah, the thing so, is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she's great. You know, you said there's nothing that you wish they did differently. There, there's one thing that I wish they did differently in this film, and that's pay Bela Lugosi a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As the sayer of the law, I, I know he's had a very small part. Man, he's great. And that line of dialogue, or the lines of dialogue he has, is probably the ones that are most sampled by, you know, rap groups and heavy metal bands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, of course, Devo. Yeah. One. That's where they got that from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen, I don't you've ever seen the picture of him in, um, it was like a pre-makeup test where he wasn't as furry. I have. Um, I think I might have liked that better to see more of his face. Because he looks more uh, like a satyr. You know, he's got the uh, elevated eyebrows and the kind of widow's peak and the pointed ears I think he's got. But less hair on his face. He's a little more devilish. Yeah. In that look. And- Maybe they didn't want people to know that it was Lugosi. I don't know. But um, I kind of preferred that makeup. Okay. You know, it would have been one of, like I was saying before, you would have seen more human than animal then. Because he was obviously the most intelligent one of them all. He was kind of like their, their chief. Yeah. I love that um, high-angle long shot of all of them in their camp when they gather. Oh, it's so There's, good. There are so many extras that they used. Uh, I, I know that probably ones in the background had minimal makeup, but they all look distorted in some way, which is really quite a feat. The makeup, the animal design, the, the creature design in this, is pretty fantastic, and a lot of the photos, maybe there were reference photos or just photos for the studio for publicity. A lot of the photos of the the animal people would turn up in like famous monsters of film land, right? In you know they look like portrait shots. You know they're well lit. You can kind of see what's going on. But to go back to what you were saying here, there's so much shadow and so much darkness happening here. You don't get to see all of that, and it's even more effective. I have heard, but I'm not sure if I've ever really seen it. There's um, the movie called Beyond the Time Barrier. It's uh, Robert Clark. It's one of mm-hmm. those these cheapies. Edward, Edgar Aldmer actually directed it. I've heard that they used a group shot of those guys, of the beast people, inserted it into that movie. But Oh, wow. I'd have to look at it again. Because if, if it is there, it must be very brief. Because it doesn't stick in my mind. Darn, we have to go back and watch a Robert Clark science fiction movie. Bummer. I've not heard that, and I've not... I can't remember it, so... Yeah, I've, I've actually... I've shown that on Dr. Drex, so I could easily just look for it, but I think near the end of it, there, I mean, there is an uprising in that movie, too, and I think they said that they put a quick shot of the Beast people in there. Huh. Let us not forget Earl C. Kenton, who directed this movie. Oh, yes, and did so well. Earl C. Kenton, I knew from the Universal films he had done. When I finally got around to watching this, I I had already watched all the monster movies. I had seen House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, all these films. So I knew the name, which again made me think that it was a Universal picture, not a Paramount. Mm-hmm. Well, for people that don't know, I mean, he directed The Ghost of Frankenstein mm-hmm. and the two house movies, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. I don't know if he did any others, but those are the ones that stick in my mind that he did for Universal. Yep. Some of the comments or criticisms I've heard is that this movie is so well directed and the other ones are not quite as good in terms of direction. But I think that's kind of a specious argument because as far as I know or can see, the Island of Lost Souls would have been an A production where, you know, ghost and two house movies would have been B's. 
So in other words, obviously, there's not as much time to devote. Or money. Yeah, and then to the A's. And I think he had the time with Lost Souls to play with it and to envision stuff, whereas he was probably in a hurry (laughs) with the uh, Universal movies that wanted them to get, you know, out there. So I think that that's probably behind it. I mean, if he had a lot more time, I think with the other movies, they might be a lot more uh, interesting looking. Not that they're bad. I love those movies, too. But I'm just assuming he had nowhere near the time that he probably had with Island of Lost Souls. And, of course, he had Kyle Struess, the uh, photographer for Lost Souls, too, who was an ace camera person. So, And his career goes back to the silence. Yeah. You know, Carl Struess, the work that he does in this film. And I mentioned the shadow work earlier. There's one shot, and we come back to it a couple of times, where they come out of the building and they come towards the camera and the shadow behind them just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. yeah. I, I love that shot, and I love it especially when one of the Beastmen are in it. Yeah. Because you see this big bestial shadow forming and taking over the entire screen. It's Yeah. It's beautiful in a scary, wicked way. Yeah. That's what's good about all the extras, too, is that all of them know enough not to walk like a normal person. Yeah. <laughs> they all walk in some kind of distorted or hunched over way, which even though, if, you know, even if we can't really see them, we somehow know that they're you know skulking around like that. Yeah. No, the, the body movement, their body acting as extras or even the featured extras, none of them stood out as, hey, that's a guy in makeup. Yeah. Not a one of them. And I, I think that's great. Struis yeah. also did uh, the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde. Was that when that came out? It was 1931? Uh, yeah, 31, okay. I think. Or even, it could be 32, because I think uh, Lost Souls was uh, like a quick follow-up, because uh, Jekyll and Hyde did so well. Right, which is what prompted Paramount to get into the yeah. making another horror film. Yeah. It's interesting because Paramount, uh, the pre-code Paramounts are, are pretty gutsy. When you look at the pre-code Jekyll and Hyde, and of course this one's pre-code, uh, Murders in the Zoo I think is pre-code. Because who can forget the beginning of that with the guy with his mouth stitched up? <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. Yeah. It's kind of too bad that the code came in and kind of screwed things up. But We've, talk- we've talked about, about the code. For listeners yeah. who don't know, and I assume most people do, but for listeners who don't know, the code we're talking about, this is pre-ratings board. This is pre-MPAA. Movies were getting a little risky, and there were some groups that weren't too keen with it, so the code came in. And you would even, you would actually have to show your script to the code before you started production, didn't you? Uh, yeah, at the time. Yeah. Each individual state, though, had the right to cut up the movie the way they wanted. Right. Which is even worse. So this film... Depending on where you saw it when it came out, it could have been completely different. Depending on what they decided to cut or, or or leave in, there's a line in Island of Lost Souls that makes me think of the. Uh, now I know what it feels like to be God line from Frankenstein that yeah. mm-hmm. was cut in certain releases because it was too blasphemous. The stuff that happens in this film, the vivisection scenes, yeah, wow, just unnerving. Yeah, I mean it's really. Uh heart-wrenching when uh, Moreau has a guy on the table he's showing to uh, Parker who's just moaning and screaming. He's Lawton is just manipulating his head like he's a piece of meat, and this poor thing is howling at the same time. That's just horrendous. Which, again, I think reflects well on the performance of the actor who played Maling. Because if Moreau is doing these things to these animals, why is Maling so loyal to him? Well, he's a dog. He's a dog, yeah. And he's man's best friend. That's what they do. And it's just everything about this film fits. There's no puzzle piece that doesn't quite 
make its way in just right. Everything fits in this film. I think um, I'm pretty sure that this movie is where the line "The Natives of Restless Tonight" came from. Oh, really? He doesn't actually say it that way. I, he says it's the natives, and later on he says they are restless tonight. And I think that's where the line comes from that's so quoted nowadays, the natives are restless huh. tonight. Maybe if you looked it up, you'd find that. But I think that's true. I think it came from this movie. I can see that. This movie is pretty – it made quite an impact yeah. on people, you know, for better or worse. So I can see that. I just wonder if um, they let the negative just dissolve or if uh, it was just – an accidental losing it. I just wonder what happened to the original negative of it. I don't know. And I don't remember if we talked about this. I know I've been saying this a lot lately on this show. If I had a time machine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go back and, and, and save these films. Yeah, of course. I mean, they were very, um, you know, the nitrate film back then was very flammable. So it's it'd be very easy to lose a whole bunch of movies that way. I know there was big fires at different lots where they did lose negatives, but I don't know if that was one of them or not, but, I don't know. It's kind of like Nosferatu in a way that uh, that is lost, the original, probably. But thank God somebody had prints of it. Uh, we wouldn't see it at all. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because all the prints were ordered destroyed. Yeah. Look how long that the uh, Frederick March Jekyll and Hyde was buried because of the Spencer Tracy version. That's right. So it's a good thing they didn't destroy it. They just buried it. <laughs> Forgot about it. Didn't think it was yeah. worth anything. I don't know. When did Universal take possession? I, I don't remember reading that anywhere, but I, I at some point they took it. And if it wasn't one of theirs, would they have just sat on it because they didn't care? I don't know. It, it's it's uh, interesting. Maybe when they didn't have the original negative of something, they didn't care. I don't know. But um, I know that the first time when I saw it on, on uh, Turner Classic Movies, it was in pretty rough shape. Um, the sound was pretty bad. I remember it was very like muffled sounding. And of course the picture was pretty beat up. Then when the VHS came out, it looked like they had uh, cleaned it up somewhat. Cause I remember it was an improvement. So I don't know what was going on in their minds, but I think it's weird that criterion is the one that released it instead of universal having enough sense to restore it and <laughs> send it out. That makes no sense to me at all, but. I think it's the thing of people overlooking this movie, not considering it one of the classic horror films. I think it's something that most people need to see if they haven't already. I think it is a very effective film. I really like the mad scientist archetype in these films, which might be why I respond to horror hosts like Dr. Drek. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like the mad scientist approach in Lawton's portrayal. He brings the mad scientist, but there's it's it's more than that in this film. And it's, so chilling, and again, like I said, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near him, but I, maybe I'd want to watch him from afar because he's just so charismatic and creepy. And you mentioned perverse. There is a sexual kind of approach to some of the things that he's doing. It's just fantastic and underrated. Yeah, definitely. Another interesting kind of coincidence is the, um, of course, it's not in the novel, but the girlfriend of Richard Arlen and Leela Hyams, I believe her name is, she was in Freaks. Right. So it was in two movies that were kind of suppressed. Freaks being the Todd Browning film that, mm. which I've seen repeatedly, and I think it's a very well done film. I don't think it's nearly as exploitive as people pretend it is. Actually, um, if you ever read the original story of Spurs um, by Todd Robbins, the midget in that one is much more malevolent. He's, you know, very revengeful and uh, kind of evil. So it was actually softened up for the movie Freaks. Yeah, Freaks is pretty unnerving, but again, it's not exploitive. 
I do feel like this film's a bit more subversive in some of the things that it's trying to. I mean, he wants the ape man to rape somebody. That's terrible. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just flat out evil and wicked. Yeah, since the other guy won't cooperate with Volta, he has to do something. Maybe we won't need Parker anymore. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. no. He doesn't even have second thoughts about anything. He just just does it. Just everything he does is okay because he's God in his own mind. It goes back to what you were saying about how he was moving the person's head back and forth like it was a piece of meat. Yeah. They're all things. They're not yeah. people. Oh. They, they don't have feelings or thoughts. They're just tools. Yeah. That's why Lugosi at the end is so powerful when he says, we're not men, we're not beasts, we're things. Did you see the person in the ape suit? Yes, Charles Gamora. Yeah, yeah. Charles Gamora I want to mention real quick. I'm a big fan of this guy. The more I learn about this guy, the more of a fan I've become. He is one of the original gorilla men. He had a long career putting on that ape suit and appearing in tons of films and appearing in tons of films. He's not in the film very often. He's just in the cage a few times, and that's about it. Yeah, I think it's the only time you see him at the beginning on the ship, really. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you see him after that or not. But it's, it's nice to see him. He's a familiar face to me because I've seen him in Murders in the Rue Morgue. Makes me wonder if he was one of the beast men somewhere. Uh, maybe. He was a, a little guy, wasn't he? Kind yeah. Of, he could have very easily have been one of them if he wanted to be. I'm sure anybody that walked on the set, hey, you want to be a beast man? Sure. <laughs> How much does it pay? Yeah, he was also a makeup artist, so there's a good chance he could have been involved with the makeup as well. Yeah, he could have been. I think the only other, I mean, um, you see Mulink fairly clearly. You see the Sayer of the Law. You see Uran clearly. The only other one I can think of is the, uh, he's like a pig man that you see. He's bald. He's got round ears. Um, you see him near the beginning at, on the island. And I, I remember seeing uh, photos of him and famous monsters of the makeup on him. I think he's supposed to be part pig or something. He looks it. <laughs> he's creepy again. He's one of these more sympathetic characters or monsters, but mm-hmm. there's still a creepiness to him. Yeah. He kind of a sniveling kind of, I don't know, awareness to what he is. He's played by Buster Brody, and, I mean, he looks good too. There's one monster that I've seen a picture of, and he looks kind of like um, there's like some bird characteristics to his face. Yeah, he had a half-owl face. I was yeah. I was trying to find him, but I couldn't see him anywhere. I was going to ask you if you've been able to pick him out, because that looks really good. Yeah, that's really disturbing looking. He's like a... No, I was looking for him, because it was in my mind, and I couldn't see him anywhere. I mean, he probably is there somewhere, but I thought he might be um, one of the marchers at the end that's coming towards the camera, but he, he didn't seem to be. No, he didn't. It's just too bad because he looks great. You go to uh, the film on the Internet Movie Database and look in the message board for this film. Somebody's talking about this particular monster. There's a picture of it right there for listeners who, you know what, I'll put it on a website as well, monsterkidradio.net. Yeah. It's a great-looking monster. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's too bad we didn't see him more clearly. Yeah, yeah. He looks good. Very, very cool stuff. This movie is filled with surprises and... I think I'm going to watch it again sooner rather than later. Hey, that's only 70 minutes. Yeah, we were talking about how you know it's an easy film to watch. It's short, just barely over an hour. I love short movies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it means you can watch more of them during the day, right? Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> more I mean, times to watch another one. Yeah. Nowadays, they would stretch it out to three hours, probably. Yeah. Yeah, so many movies nowadays, just uh, to me, are just too long. It's like they look like they should end, and then they go on for another half hour. It's, Will you stop? 
That's why I like B-movies. I know I won't have to waste a lot of time watching them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They're, they're nice and short and sweet. They're, it's a little package, and that's that. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, the one from the 90s with Marlon Brando ended up being pretty long, didn't it? About an hour and a half or so. Feels long. <laughs> yeah, it feels long. And that one got really ridiculous at the end because then the beast folk got machine guns and everything in there running around shooting up everybody and... The only thing missing was a car chase. (laughs) That movie's a train wreck. It really is. I imagine maybe during our lifetime, somebody will make another one. You know, I've been hearing things, I've been seeing things online about Paramount pushing it again for something, but with a female lead. Well, maybe they'll try something different. I don't know, but how many times have we heard them going to remake this, going to remake that? I mean, the creature from the Black Lagoon's gonna. Oh God! Don't you say that out loud? You just give it power. No. <laughs> no, I don't want. Yeah, so many, so many of them should not be remade. Don't touch these anymore, please. Yes, here it is, Doctor Catherine Moreau. Oh my God! Really? Yeah. CBS is looking to do it as a TV show, or maybe a TV movie. Oh, that's chilling. <laughs> and not in a good way. Not in a good way. <laughs> Considering. Let's see. Where did I see this? This is on the website Deadline, actually. Sheesh. Well, I know that I would probably watch it at first. Well, it Maybe. sounds like you're a fan of the book, so you, you want to know what they're doing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> with trepidation, I'd watch it, but <laughs> I wouldn't expect much. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this looks terrible, man. <laughs> A disgraced London physiologist retreating to an island to continue their experiments. I'm trying to think of the author's name. It's a French author. He was the um, author that wrote the novel of the Hands of Orlock. And he wrote a novel called Dr. Learn, which uh, is something like The Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm looking forward to get a hold of it because I would like to read it. But I, I'd heard that it was something like The Island of Dr. Moreau. I'm not familiar with it. Hans Warlock's great, but I'm not familiar. I guess, he, I guess this author wrote uh, quite a, a few um, odd novels like that. Okay. So I'm going to have to find that one and read it. Yeah, it looks like he dedicated that book to H.G. Wells and the, the guys doing organ pr- transplants between man and animal. I think I saw it on Amazon. It's one of my list things to pick up. Now I'm curious. Another book to read. Yeah. <laughs> my my to-read pile is nearly as big as my to-watch pile of movies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. I think this movie is something, if people haven't seen it, and if we haven't spoiled it too much, and I don't think we did. We we danced around some of the yeah, more interesting bits. People, people need to see it. Basic story, anyway. And yeah. Probably the, the sad part is probably most people have seen the other two versions instead of the first one. People should see this. And it's on the Criterion label. I mean, Criterion did an amazing job. That's how you have it, right? That's yes. what you said? Yeah. Oh, God, it's such a great presentation. It's as restored as you're going to get. Yeah, unfortunately, but at least it's uh, it's, it's there. It's all in one piece. I was watching it this morning before we started recording with the Gregory Mank commentary, which is fantastic. There are interviews on here. John Landis talks about the movie with Bob Burns on this uh, Blu-ray and DVD. It's really good and highly recommended and pretty affordable for Criterion. Yeah, maybe because it's not the original negative. They didn't feel like they should charge a arm and a leg for it because usually they do <laughs> yeah it's criterion yeah fortunately they have the twice a year sale at barnes and noble or whatever where it's half off criterion and all the sponsor kids freak out because we didn't save yeah. up for it yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I don't know if Turner Classic Movie shows it anymore. I don't have cable anymore, so I don't know. But they should show it during Halloween week or whatever. But I don't know if they um, if they broadcast it much anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't. I only caught it that once, which was kind of like a miracle. I think they are showing this year the Charles Lawton Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. But I don't know about Island of Lost Souls when the last time they played it or if they're playing it now. 70s one's on a lot. That's pretty easy to catch on TV or elsewhere. I imagine the rights to it aren't too expensive. <laughs> yeah, probably not. And we didn't even mention that Charles Lawton's married to the Bride of Frankenstein. Yes, Elsa. Yep. To Lanchester. Who was a staunch defender of this film. Yeah, and she said that um, after he made the film, he couldn't stand to be or see any more animals in a zoo or anywhere mm -hmm. because the, the stench of them all during the movie was just too much. I don't know if uh, he felt sorry for them or if he just didn't like animals, but <laughs> apparently they didn't make a good impression on him. I can imagine if you're being stuck with a lot of wild animals uh, on a set that it must get to you after a while. Yeah, I would think so, too. Well, it's it's a horrifying thing that he's doing to the animals anyway. So. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. Too. But she, yeah, she defended this film staunchly, defended her husband's participation in it. This was just his third film in Hollywood, wasn't it? This was an early role for him as well. So for him to be relatively new in Hollywood and to pull this off. I believe it's after The Old Dark House. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Which is I, don't know, also I don't know what his first American movie was, do you? All I can think of is Old Dark House in this one. Directed by James Whale, who also directed his wife and Brian Frankenstein. There's a lot of interesting connections here. No, no, The Old Dark House was before this, which is, again, people haven't seen it. They need to see it. It's great. Oh, yeah. There's really something well. about the pre-code 1930s horror films, especially once you start getting away from our favorite monsters, where they get really dark and, and twisted and just entertaining. Yeah, yeah. In all the first uh, few years of the 30s, most of the movies that I can think of didn't have a background score. I mean, obviously, Frankenstein, Dracula, this one. Yeah. Uh, I don't think The Old Dark House had a score. I don't think so either. I think Bride of Frankenstein had some music. Yeah, that's got one of the world's best scores. It does. <laughs> it really does. But that's in the mid-30s. But the first few years, they didn't uh, they didn't do background scores because they actually thought people would be confused, wondering where the music was coming from. <laughs> yeah, Dracula had music at the beginning and the end. Yeah. And Universal used the same music at the beginning and the end of The Mummy. You know, Swan yes. Lake appears in both Swan films. Lake, yes. Yeah. Mm. And, and even then, it's just so minimal. Frankenstein, I can't remember. Does Frankenstein have a little bit in the credits? Yes. I think it does a little bit after the warning about the film being shocking and terrifying. Right. They roll yeah. into just a little bit of music. This one didn't need any music. And again, I'm going to go back to what I said at the very beginning of this conversation. I didn't notice that there was no music in this film. I was so caught up in it. I'm not sure if they could have, if they wanted to, but... I think what struck me about the no music was that when you think of animals, you think of stealth and silence. You know, if they're sneaking up on you, you don't want music playing in the background. That's true. <laughs> and I think that's what made them more effective, especially when Uran there was breaking through the bars on the window to come into the room to <laughs> get at the white girl. That was pretty creepy. Yeah. That's nothing you want to wake up and see at night. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Regardless of why he's coming in, it doesn't matter. It doesn't right. matter. I was going to mention Joe Bonomo because he was a Hollywood strongman type who doubled for Lon Chaney Sr. in Hunchback. 
he also appeared as one of the monsters in there. So there are a couple of different names here and there when you start digging Charles Gamora, Bonomo, people like that, that were involved in the film. Lugosi's fantastic. Lawton's amazing. I don't think there's anybody in here who turns in a subpar acting performance. I can't think of one, that's for sure. Richard Arlen looks suitably disgusted with Moreau. <laughs> And quite rightly gives him a good smack in the head once. Yeah. Lawton really went flying there when I when I when I saw that the other night all against the furniture or something. Yeah, I wonder if he got hurt the way he threw himself backwards. Yeah, like, he just he smashed into the furniture. He commits. He commits. <laughs> yeah. Did Arlen's makeup? Did his face seem incredibly pale to you? Well, I don't know. It might have been because of you know the times too. Where yeah. They, uh, piled on the makeup too much, but it did look a little pancakey to me yeah it might have uh but it might have been just you know accented because it was so dark most of the time right it stood out it didn't detract i just was wondering if maybe i just had a setting on my tv wrong (laughs) yeah where's the color how come (laughs) it's supposed to be restored where's the color yeah yeah oh god (laughs) no don't colorize this nobody nobody get any ideas no none please if you had to pair this movie up with another film as like a double feature, what movie would you pick? Oh, my God. That's a tough one. I, I don't have an answer myself, but I was wondering if you... Birds in the Zoo. Yeah, there you go. Two animal movies. Not exactly Disney movies, but two animal movies. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah. They were both Paramount. So, yeah, that would be a good double feature. There we go. Well, now I'll have to get my hands on Murders in the Zoo and maybe bring you back on the show to talk about it. Yeah, that's quite... Oh, boy. <laughs> Things that go on in that movie is pretty bad, too. <laughs> right. not, it's not as weird as the Dr. Moreau, but no. still. Like I said, Lionel Atwell could have pulled off a Dr. Moreau characterization, too. Oh, definitely. I, I feel like if this was a universal film, that's who would have played him. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to say about the movie? If you haven't seen it, find it, watch it. Like I said, for me, it belongs on the top tier with all the other ones. From top to bottom. It's a yeah. great film. Yes, it's great. Really, really good. So this episode is going to go out either just before or just after Halloween. I got to ask, how does Dr. Drex celebrate Halloween? This year, I unfortunately, I love to see kids come on Halloween, and I live in a place where no one ever shows up. I have the same thing, yeah. It's, it's really sad, because mm-hmm. obviously when I was a kid, I was all over the neighborhood. But yeah, me too. nowadays, everybody's so scared, they all stay home, or they go to parties instead. They go to the mall. Yeah, they go to the mall. But, uh, yeah, I'll be here probably picking out something to watch that night. Maybe my own show, <laughs> my <laughs> Halloween show. I also found a, um, for my Halloween show, it's it's the Screaming Skull, but it's not the one that you're thinking of. Okay. Uh, it's a kinescope of an old TV show uh, called Classic Ghost Stories. It's in black and white, and... The Screaming Skull was a you know a short story, which is where all the offshoots come from. So this is just like another variation of The Screaming Skull. This one's got David McCallum in it as the lead. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it appears to be a television, um, I guess a, a one-shot television movie or whatever, but it's only, it only exists as a kinescope, which, you know, it's kind of grainy, but you know, I mean, it's, it's watchable and you can hear what's going on. But it's nothing like... The other Screaming Skull. Which is a great film. Yeah, that's a lot of fun, too. I love that movie, too. So I found a different Screaming Skull. Wow. We were talking before we started recording about another film that you are 
going to be doing on your show. Where do you find these movies? These sound great. I've found them off and on over the years, but sometimes I find them on the, um, you know, like eBay or whatever. I hear of a movie. Sometimes uh, Creepy Classics has some oddball things that are rare. I recently got Terra Aboard from them, which is that another pre-code movie. I want to see that film. Uh, that's Paramount, too, I believe. With, again, Charlie Ruggles. Mm-hmm. It was in Murders in the Zoo, but... Uh, I got that from Creepy Classics. So. Oh, okay. I can't remember where I read about that, but recently that came up in an article or something I was looking at, and I thought, that's a movie I need to see. Yeah, it's in the Forgotten Horrors books. Okay, that might have been it. Yeah, and you can tell it's a pre-code movie. <laughs> <laughs> right on. People bleed in pre-code movies. They don't just clutch their chest and fall over yeah. when somebody fires oh, a gun off screen? Yeah. That sounds like fun, man. If I was in your area, you know, we'd get together and watch a monster movie or two for Halloween. That'd be fun. <laughs> Every time I think I can't find any more things I haven't seen, I find something I haven't seen. So that's a good thing. Yes. Lots, lots of stuff to watch out there for us these days, which is great. Well, keep watching the movies, man. Thank you for being on the show and bringing Island of Lost Souls to Monster Kid Radio. And again, congratulations. A 12-year run as Dr. Drek with more to come. That's amazing. Yeah, to me too. <laughs> Well, congratulations. Please thank the rest of your cast and crew on behalf of me and Monster Kid Radio and congratulate them as well because it's it's solid work. I really enjoy what you do. And so do we. So that's why we keep doing it. There you go. (laughs) Michael, thank you. You're welcome. If I don't talk to you again beforehand, have a happy Halloween, my friend. You too. Far away, in an unknown place, there is a forgotten island where fear has lived unchallenged. Until now, the island of Dr. Moreau, where a madman has unlocked a secret of nature and unleashes the terrors of hell. No! 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 The island of Dr. Moreau, where strange creatures, half man, half beast, turn a tropical paradise into a raging jungle. Where lost souls shriek in the night and man is no longer safe from the creatures who now stalk him. The Island of Dr. Moreau, from American International, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. got some feedback about some previous episodes. First, I wanted to comment on a comment that was left on our Facebook page. Now, this is the actual page, not the group, but the page at facebook.com slash monsterkidradio. Like it if you're on Facebook, won't you? Anyway, episode 239, the Inner Sanctum Mysteries episode with Paul McComas. Got some comments about that. Specifically, I wanted to comment on the one left by Carl Graham, where he said this was a content-rich program with some very nice insights into the Inner Sanctum mystery movies. I was especially impressed with Paul's insights on the influence of Freud in these films. It has me rethinking other classic horror movies for similar scenes. Carl, thanks for leaving that comment. And, you know, I love having Paul on the show. The guy is so smart, man. (laughs) I'm always taking notes every time I have him on the show and just chatting with him. He drops knowledge like no other when it comes to these classic monster movies. Well, and just film in general. And I think it's real interesting and fascinating and a good thing that we can look at these movies and enjoy them on a surface level. You know, they're great monster movies, but if you really start to dig and you start to see some other very, very interesting things beneath the surface. In fact, I just recorded this past weekend with a writer by the name of Scott Roche. He's going to be on an upcoming episode. More on that in a little bit. And 
you know, while we were talking, we kind of stumbled across this idea that maybe a reaction to a, a male reaction, a, a wrong-headed reaction to women getting more and more power in society might have crept into this film in some way, the film that we're going to talk about. Again, we'll talk about that here at the end of the show when I tell you what's coming next week. Anyway, fascinating stuff. And Carl, thank you for leaving that comment. I also got a voicemail from Stephen D. Sullivan. He packs a lot into this uh, about two and a half minute voicemail. Pay attention. Take some notes. He's got some exciting stuff going on. Hey, Derek. Steve Sullivan here with a Manos update. As you may know, Manos came out in ebook form. Manos, the Hands of Fate ebook for all ebook formats. So you can go to smashwords.com or drivethroughfiction.com, pick it up for anything you like, or you can go to amazon.com and pick it up for Kindle. And if you're having trouble, you can type www.manosfilm.com. Go to my Manos Film page for these books and check out the latest news on this one I just released and the upcoming one that I'm still working on. Really enjoying the Inner Sanctum broadcast. Need to rewatch those films. Love them all. And you guys are totally right. Lon is fine for any of those roles, and anyone that says anything else just isn't paying attention. Now, very quickly, I promised you my top three Monster Rally movies. And here they are. My rules are no kaiju. Too easy. Too many kaiju films battling monsters. No comedies. Because you can just play loose by the rules and comedies and you don't have to obey any real rules. So here's what I'm going for. I chose kind of a past, present, and future one. Number three, much more recently, Aliens versus Predators. I love that film. Monsters duking it out in a, a sunken temple pyramid under Antarctica. What's not to love? Here's the one that a lot of people maybe haven't seen. Night of the Werewolf. It's a Paul Nashie film, otherwise known as El Retorno del Hombre Loco. Lobo, not loco. <laughs> anyway, it's a, a great Nashie film, and it's a remake sort of of Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman. One of my favorite Nashie films. It's awesome. And number one just has to be the original Monster Rally film, because King Kong doesn't count even though he's fighting dinosaurs. It's Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and it's an awesome film, a film that I like everything about, though, like everyone else, I would really have liked to see seen the version where Bela Lugosi actually gets to talk. Anyway, that's my top three Monster Rally films. As you know, I'm working on a Monster Rally project called Cushing Horrors, and at some point there will be more news about that, but right now it's all Manos all the time until I get the scary version of Manos done. Anyway, have a great show, a great week, and I'll talk to you soon. SDSullivan.com or ManosFilm.com, and you'll get there. Take care. Ciao. ManosFilm.com. That's going to get you to where you can buy your ebook version. I can't believe somebody did it. But I can believe that if somebody did do it, Steve was the one to do it. Manos, The Hands of Fate, as a novel. Now, he's the guy who wrote the white zombie novelization a little bit ago. He's the man behind Daikaiju Attack. I've got the ebook myself. I've started reading it, and it's a lot of fun. I can't wait for the serious horror version of it. Ooh, that's going to be good, because Manos, you know, there's something there. There's a seed. There's a kernel of something in there that you could maybe pull out. I don't know. 
Uh, anyway, he also dropped some of his favorite monster mashups. And yeah, the kaiju films, they do start to cross over a lot. I still think something like Destroy All Monsters counts because it's got so many. But, you know, your list, yeah, I can't really comment too much on the modern films. Just not my bag much anymore these days. But your final pick, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, come on. I mean, it's a classic. It's what started it all. I wish I remembered the link because I'd mention it here now. Maybe somebody else out there knows. But somebody was posting on a blog or a website somewhere that Frankenstein meets the Wolfman was the original birth of a cinematic shared universe. So this whole Marvel Comics cinematic universe thing or what DC's trying to do or even the new Godzilla versus King Kong idea that might happen. Universal did it first. Yeah, Frankenstein and the Wolfman bringing in Dracula into the mix and it's universal. Not only do they give us the monsters, they give us the first shared cinematic universe or something like that. Although I'm sure this was done in literature before film came along in the pulp fiction, perhaps of, I don't know, the weird tales era, the twenties before universal, I, you know, I'd have to dig into a little bit more research. Maybe Frank Schildener. I know he writes new pulp. He might know a little bit more about that. Anyway, Steve also mentioned the movie night of the werewolf. You know, my Paul Nashy knowledge is incredibly lacking. I don't know nearly as much about Nashy as I should. I listened to the Nashy cast, but I, I haven't seen the films. Now, I'm going to change that. I actually have some Nashy films on deck for my Halloween viewing this year. But yeah, I just don't have enough Nashy in me to know enough to talk intelligently about him. I mean, we have a couple of Nashy films in the Dorado Films catalog, like Horror Rises from the Tomb, a few things like that. But his werewolf movies? I need to see them. And, and I will soon, really. Don't take my Monster Kid card away from me yet. I will. Hello, everyone. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain and I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. Uh, yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks Shamb like melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. How of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Horror Rises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Oh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. Monster Kid Radio wants you. If you have wiki skills, here's the thing. Monster Kid Radio is going to be putting together a Wikipedia Cyber Street team. If you are skilled in the ways of Wikipedia, if you can speak their language and code their coding, we would like to ask you 
for your help. Now, this is not a formalized campaign or anything like that, but if you ever hear anything about any of the topics that we talk about here on Monster Kid Radio that you think needs to be on Wikipedia, well, go ahead and do it. Monster Kid Radio does have a Wikipedia page, so you can go ahead and link back to us over there. We're just trying to get more information about these movies out into the general public, kind of make it a little bit more common knowledge, because... The more people who know about these movies and know the trivia about these movies, the better. The more monster kids there are, well, the more people we get to go see awesome movies with and talk about movies with and go to conventions. I mean, it's part of our spreading the word and fighting the good fight for these films. So if you know how to use Wikipedia and you hear somebody mention something about Nosferatu, Creature from the Black Lagoon, House of Wax, Destination Interspace, any movie that we've talked about here on the show, we'd like to encourage you to update Wikipedia with that information. To be clear, I'm not asking you to update the Monster Kid Radio Wikipedia page. We don't need that. What we do need is more information about, well, what we love out there on the internet. Well, if you want to leave some feedback for Monster Kid Radio like Steve did, you can call us at our voicemail line. It's 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Or you can email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or you can go to our Facebook page. Again, that's facebook.com slash monsterkidradio. And just leave a comment on the posting for whatever episode you have a comment on. You don't have to just leave a comment about this episode. If you have something you'd like to talk about from any of the previous 240? Yeah, 240 episodes? Feel free. MonsterKidRadio.net's got everything else you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There's links to our Facebook group. There's a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show that way. You can find links to every single song that's appeared here on the show. And you can find a place to sign up for the Monster Rally Checkpoint monthly e-newsletter. Put your email address in, and once a month, you're going to get an email newsletter from me telling you about what's coming up with Monster Kid Radio, giving you some bonus content, monster movie trivia questions. It's a lot of fun. You'll also find a link to the website of author Scott Roche. Now, I bring this up, and this is going to be on the website because Scott's going to be on an upcoming episode of Monster Kid Radio. He and I recorded last weekend about the movie The Tingler, starring Vincent Price, directed by William Castle. Now, Scott just had an e-book come out called The House of Phobos, and that's P-H-O-B-O-S. It's an anthology with nothing but short stories about phobias, fears, and it looks very cool. Now, I've already picked it up. I've got it on my Kindle. I'm going to start reading it here soon. I'm excited to get into it. Scott is a great guy. He's one of the co-hosts of the Dead Robot Society, which is a writing podcast I listen to. He's been posting all sorts of cool short stories inspired by, well, the classic monsters over on his Patreon page. Reached out to him, got him on the show. We're going to talk about The Tingler in two weeks on Monster Kid Radio. Next week on Monster Kid Radio. This one's pretty cool, ladies and gentlemen. I've got the son of the son of Frankenstein on the show. I interviewed Donnie Dunnigan. He played Peter Von Frankenstein in The Son of Frankenstein. He was also in Tower of London, and you know what? He even did a little bit of Disney work lending his voice to the character of Bambi. It was a great conversation. It ran about half an hour. He's a very easygoing guy. Had a lot of things to say. That's going to be next week on Monster Kid Radio, as well as my Halloween 2015 debrief. So come back right here on iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen to your podcasts next week. Between now and then, 
Remember, the Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Mapache by the band Les Panches Surfers. You can find them over at their Bandcamp site, lespanchessurfers.bandcamp.com. And a quick spelling, it's L-E-S-P-A-N-C-H-E-S. S-U-R-F-E-R-S dot bandcamp.com or, you know, follow the link in the show notes. Go check it out. This song's actually available as a free download. They also have a Facebook page so you can check them out there. And of course, as always, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Talk to everybody next week when we're back here with Scott Roche in a conversation about the Tingler. (laughs) 